Hello, and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. Well, there it is, and there I am, and here we are. Welcome to another edition of Hashtag Triple R, Red Rock Relationships. I am your host, and I believe that this is the third time we actually have our guest in person. Normally it's like a former ASU person who's somewhere in the country, but I am joined for the second time by Cesaria Selwyn. Thank you so much for uh, for coming in the booth and, and talking about this with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, if I'm not mistaken, you have had a position and responsibility change since your last time here. So could you please uh, update the audience as to what your responsibilities are here now at this university? Responsibilities are now that I'm overseeing the LGBTQ Resource Center, but mm-hmm. my official title is Assistant Director of the Multicultural Inclusion Center dash LGBTQ plus, and that's because I also get to address intersectionality and work with BIPOC students as well. Nice, and I'm sure that that will probably crop up in our discussions today. The intersectionality of our topic, which is of course gender, which is definitely mm-hmm. a hot button issue. It's been a hot button issue for years now. It feels. Like like I remember the first time that gender really popped up into my like area of recognition was right around 2015 when we saw a professor who will be left nameless uh, at the University of Toronto <laughs> making a big deal about pronouns, which we'll get to. But we can't get there yet because we really don't even know what we're talking about at this point. So if you're ready, I'd like to just jump into it. All right, let's do it. My first question is probably both the easiest question I can ask and the most difficult question that I can ask. And it's just simply like, what is gender? Like, I I feel like the answer that you get differs so much based on who you ask and how you ask and where you ask. But like, if we could talk about like the things that make up a given person's gender identity and or gender expression, what would those things be? All right, so before we get ahead of ourselves, first, mm. I like to talk about the term gender. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people use the term gender interchangeably with sex assigned mm. at birth. And for me, when I'm talking about gender, I'm talking about the social construction of gender, mm-hmm. right? So that's not on a chromosomal level. It's not anything biological. It's the idea that we socialize certain behaviors and then assign them typically within a lot of different communities within a binary as being masculine or feminine. Mm-hmm. So biologically, there's no reason, for example, that men aren't supposed to wear heels or makeup, right? More traditionally now, we're seeing more and more paint their nails, mm-hmm. but... That would be a really good example of kind of like saying what a social construct is. We're saying it's inappropriate for one person because they present a certain way to wear certain items, articles, to display certain behaviors, Mm -hmm. even to talk in a certain Mm -hmm. way or to experience certain feelings. Right? Right. So really, when I'm talking about gender, our gender identity, it's the idea that you might have been assigned a sex at birth, mm-hmm. but we can decide what role that we've placed or we have in society, right? For, so for example, I identify as being non-binary, mm-hmm. um, even though I was assigned female at birth, and typically I present very feminine. But for me, there's a lot of context that comes into that. It's basically a standard I've been held to my entire life that just doesn't make sense to me. Like it's never felt like me. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, when, you know, and language came into it, being able to find they, them pronouns and explore what that meant was very important to me. So 
when we're talking about gender identity, typically the way people are going to decide is they're going to say that they identify as a man, they identify as a woman, they identify as non-binary. Those are usually going to be the most common. Um, people can also choose to identify as being transgender, for example. Mm -hmm. But just because somebody has transitioned, meaning they're no longer identifying as the sex they were assigned at birth, doesn't mean they have to identify and choose their gender identity as trans first. They can simply be a man or woman mm. because of how they see themselves. Right. Now, how many ways can you identify in English? I think there's 80-some <laughs> right now. <laughs> gender fluid, gender nonconforming, gender queer. A gender. There's so many mm -hmm. different ones that can come up. And really, I think the most important thing, too, is if you ever hear somebody identify a gender is saying, thank you so much for feeling comfortable sharing that with me. If you don't mind me asking, what does that mean to you? How mm. can I be respectful of it? Because for what one person means as non-binary or transgender might be very different to another. That's a really good point. And to that end, thank you for sharing your identity with, mm -hmm. uh, with the audience. Um, so getting back to that initial question what are the things that make up a gender it, mm -hmm. it strikes me that there's this really important um uh like juncture that we get to when we talk about what gender is and for me that really important juncture happens at the intersection of a person's gender identity and their gender expression yeah so you can identify in one way and for whatever reason, you, you may choose to express your gender in a way that is parallel to that identity, but you may also choose to express differently from that identity. Can you unpack a little bit about why folks might choose that? Yeah. So gender identity, again, is going to be the way that somebody personally sees their own gender identity, right? Mm -hmm. You get to decide what that looks like. Now, typically, right, if somebody is identifies as a woman, they're going to express as feminine, male, right, masculine. Now, right. that's not always the case. Like I said, I'm not binary and I express different. So expressing differently is typically we have like social cues when we look at another person that we're like, oh, male, female, right? We're so trained example, to do that, right? Like I talked about wearing heels, wearing makeup, having certain mannerisms, you know, being comfortable crying, for example, is a really big one that I give students all the time. It's a big one, right? Especially for young men. Mm-hmm. So let's say there is a young guy at a grocery store and he starts crying in the middle of the aisle as he's checking out versus a woman, mm -hmm. right? The reaction that people have is going to change because of the way that they're expressing in that moment, the way that people are perceiving that person's gender. Now, even though one person's looking at someone saying, oh, that's a woman, they could identify as non-binary, genderqueer. They could mm. identify as a male and use he, him pronouns. Mm -hmm. But because somebody looks a certain way, maybe because they're not androgynous enough, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to make assumptions. Now, it could be that the person that is crying, right? The first person identifies as a woman, but because society sees them as a male, right? Becomes socially unacceptable. So the idea of expressing is basically that society creates specific cues and it's different to every culture and society, right? Because, and time context as well. So yes, when we look era, at- era, era matters. Thank you. So for example, when we're talking about having long hair, wearing wigs, wearing makeup and heels, who did that initially? Was it women? <laughs> nope. No, it Aristocratic was not. Aristocratic males, right? Yes. It was all the trend. And eventually it watered its way down to the female population. For the record, you're, you're talking about like powdered wigs yes. and the, the the face makeup that was used by, like you said, aristocratic men mm -hmm. traditionally in Eastern European countries. And then, of course, here in the States as well. Exactly. Right. But at the time, that was the gold standard for masculinity. Yes. yes. And no now. longer. 
<laughs> no longer. Yeah. Exactly. So that's where that intersection lies is it's very much subjective mm-hmm. and different people are going to read it different ways for the longest time, particularly within like US cultures and customs. Right. Except for the eighties, men didn't have long hair. Right? Right. Well, I remember when the Beatles came around, they had long hair and it was shorter than your hair. Right. So it, it's very interesting to see the ways in which social norms reflect society back at itself. And it's kind of like almost this repeating, never ending mirror of society and culture, you know, going back and forth with each other and creating mm-hmm. new norms and then, you know, tossing away those norms in favor of newer ones and newer ones and newer ones. And I think what happens is, you know, you want to talk about era. I think people from generations don't like that sort of change, right? Especially older generations. They, they're like, well, no, that's, that's kind of not how we used to do things. Uh, and so there's, I'm going to call it a learning curve uh, that, that is often involved in terms of people understanding the, these like extremely complex issues like for example, the difference between gender identity and gender um, expression, right? Especially when, as you mentioned, there's already a conflation between gender broadly as a construct Mm -hmm. and assigned sex or what some people might call biological sex. Big differences there. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I feel like maybe we've tackled that in an all right fashion. Now let's talk a little bit about relationships. Mm -hmm. So my next question is, do we feel like there are... um, any, any factors that gender, I'm going to use the term gender diverse, if that's okay. So people who maybe don't necessarily subscribe to the traditional binary, right, of man, woman. Are there factors that uh, gender diverse people experience that um, either inhibit or perhaps even make easier the formation, the maintenance, or the dissolution of close relationships? And th- this can be a question both in terms of like romantic relationships or family relationships and friendships. Um, what sort of unique hurdles or obstacles are our gender diverse people dealing with in that realm? Yeah. So what we're really talking about is people who are non-cis. So this is just somebody who identifies as sex they were assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. Also very exclusionary to intersex individuals. But... When we're talking about gender diversity, it's a really broad topic and it really depends on who you're talking to, you know, Mm. because the reality is, is gender, I think, is the very first thing that as humans we are socialized to. Um, I think the researcher's name is Judy Loeber, really, really great journal um, article that talks about how we socialize gender. And I think the, the way that she forms it is like, for most people talking about gender is the equivalent of a fish talking about water because in utero, the first thing a parent does is what's the baby sex. And then the language changes, the Mm. colors change everything in the way that you engage that individual and socialize them changes. Mm -hmm. So the reality is, is when you no longer identify as the sex assigned at birth, most parents don't have the awareness to not see that as an affront to their parenting style. Right. They take it personally. They did something wrong. They damaged their kid, right? Or in their mind, you know, they were dreaming their entire life of having a little girl, someone soft, somebody that they could wear a dress, put dresses on, do their hair, Mm -hmm. walk down the aisle one day. So the idea is they had all these hopes and dreams that they had set on an identity and placed that on a child without ever thinking about what it is they want. Right. Not that parents don't do that in every other facet of a kid's right. life. No, but when it, when it comes to just this one little area that, you know, yeah. uh, makes up a person's mm-hmm. entire lived experience, right? Exactly. That, and, and, and I think that that's part of it too, not to cut you off, but I think that for a lot of parents who, um, 
combat the lived experience of their child for them it it, it becomes this element of well, it's just not a, it's not that big of a deal when in reality it is, it, it's the biggest of deals. I think about it from like a hierarchical standpoint, right? If you don't feel comfortable in your own skin, you feel like you can't be yourself. How are you going to do all the things that your parents hope you succeed in, in the first place? Mm-hmm. It's really, really hard for a lot of parents. And typically it has nothing to do with their child. And it's just just the learning curve of them learning how to bring in more gender neutral language or just being able to reframe it and see their kid. There's so many parents that I've worked with in the past, especially if they have a child that transitions where they cry and they feel like they're they're They have a death in the family that they've lost this individual because to them, the core of their identity. And this is really how significant, right? The social construct doesn't even exist Mm -hmm. is to most people is that they literally feel that their child has died simply because they no longer identify as that cis marker. Right. So it's really insane. That's not to say that people don't have really great conversations with parents. There's people I work with that their parents are great activists and allies and they're like coming in, they're like, teach me, educate me. Mm -hmm. I want to know better. That's not always the case, but it really just depends on the person and if they're able to be self-aware and look outside themselves. Now, can that happen in romantic relationships? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if somebody transitions and by the way saying that you're transgender just means again that you're no longer identifying as the sex assigned at birth technically as somebody who's non-binary that would fall in the category to me i don't personally feel comfortable using the term transgender though because i feel like i don't experience nearly the same amount of pushback that individuals who choose to transition do particularly those who go on hrt right hrt meaning um hormone replacement therapy yes hormone replacement therapy Mm -hmm. um i i think you make a really good point. I'm just going to make one point, and then we move on to our next question. When you talk about transitioning, I think that in many communities, um, including communities that are doing their best to be helpful, I think one of the things that people mistakenly do is they treat the transition like it is a journey that has a beginning and a middle and an end, and that if you have not reached the end of that transition, that you are not where you need to be in terms of your gender identity, and the point of being trans is not to like pass for a different gender. The point of being trans is to truly be able to be genuine about your own identity and your own expression. And so just because like, let's say you're a trans man, uh, not presenting as super masculine or, uh, you know, not getting uh, bottom or top surgery, that isn't necessarily as important, I think, as many cisgender people consider it to be. Again, I think a lot of this stems from confusion, but I just wanted to make that point it is a huge thing both within the queer community and outside the -hmm. idea of passing it's heartbreaking that so many people like their mental health is hanging on that i don't know if it's necessarily specific to their own views as far as socialized views yeah but the reality is is when you pass every day you don't have to live constantly advocating for your identity right so there is something to it. The problem is it's extremely hard to do. And some people just don't have the body to quote unquote pass. Yeah. But, and, yeah. And so I think that what we, what I what I'm trying to say is that right now we place a lot of the onus on the trans person or on the non-binary person mm-hmm. to adhere to this socially constructed norm that, that we've all agreed exists. Uh, when in reality, it might be a little bit more beneficial to place that onus on everyone else because we're talking about a group of people that are highly vulnerable in terms of things like self-harm in terms of you know what comes after that which we don't need to talk about but um 
journey when to self-love. Sure. Yes. Uh, and when we talk about whose responsibility it is, it's a little bit easier for everyone to ever so slightly every now and then inconvenience themselves if it means that an extremely at-risk group is going to have a better odds of um, loving themselves. Anyway, all that to say, <laughs> and this is kind of the last thing that I wanted to get to during our time today, pronouns. Mm-hmm. It's a hot button issue. It's been a hot button issue. Can you talk to me about why pronouns are important and why it can be valuable or perhaps helpful to ask a person what genuinely ask, unapologetically ask what their pronouns are? So pronouns, just in case listeners are unfamiliar, it's just going to be how somebody refers to themselves conjugating within a sentence. So, Mm -hmm. right. So I use they, them pronouns, she, her, the most common. So are he, him. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of other pronouns too that can be used. I would say those are typically the top three. Now you'll also find people that use variations like she, her and he, him or she, they. So we can get into that a little bit if we have time, but The biggest thing with pronouns is that's how a person sees themselves. So I can say for me personally, when people use she, her pronouns with me, it's really triggering because I have had countless experiences in my life where I've been told I'm not enough or there's something wrong with me because I'm not living up to a standard that I didn't create. I had nothing to do with. I never personally said, okay, I'm feminine. I identify as a woman. Mm -hmm. Now hold me to these standards. Right. Um, But yet I'm held to them regardless And so that's why I really like that. So for me, when I'm saying I use they, them pronouns, what I'm really asking somebody to do is get to know me for me rather than seeing me through the context or the lens of what I should be as a woman. Right. Right. And that's why for me, it's really critical um, to advocate for myself like that and try to set that standard. Now, do most people respect it? No. (laughs) I think some people really want to and they just haven't. incorporated as part of their everyday practice. But as far as why they're important, I would say, is it important for you to some, is it important to you for somebody to call you by your name? Yeah. Right. It's the same thing. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of your core identity. Um, even though it is a social construct, it's one of the first things that we recognize in every human and we think of, mm-hmm. right? So we're trying to construct our identity when we're talking about like identity management theory, for example, right? Right. And face negotiation theory in those episodes. What we're really trying to do is establish our identity in that situation. And for some people, like for me, I live in the non-binary like region, so there isn't that binary. But for some people, they want to be seen as a man. They want to be seen as a woman. That's a critical part of their core identity. So for you to validate that and to respect how they see themselves is really critical. So I think the biggest thing that all of the pronouns come down to, especially when you may not use a pronoun that somebody would assume in the beginning, is you just trying to establish that this is how you can respect me and my identity. Yeah. I would say it's the same thing as somebody correcting and saying, no, this is actually how you pronounce my name. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I think respect is big. I am, I, I think of an anecdote from my life where I was talking to a friend who was like, oh, I didn't know that you put your pronouns in your, in your like biography identity. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I do. I, I use he, him pronouns. And he was like, well, I just don't think it's fair that we have to memorize all of these pronouns, like the Z's and the Xims and the Zers. And I was like, well, you know, no one's asking you to memorize anything, but if somebody says I identify using they, them pronouns, and you forget once or twice, I'm willing to bet that that person will forgive you as long as you're making an honest effort to show them respect. But if you continue to make the mistake, it shows negligence, it shows disrespect. And so when you get to that level, now you're just being, now you're just being a jerk. 
I like to use the Mitchell test. Okay. Mitchell is my least favorite name. I'm sorry if there are any <laughs> Mitchells listening. But the way that I see it, if you're okay, if your name's not Mitchell, which I'm assuming it's not, and you're not okay with somebody just referring to you as Mitchell for the rest of your life, you should just respect other people's pronouns. Because like, imagine like going around and everyone being like, hey, Mitchell. And I'm like, no, it's James. Please, please, it's James. Um, well, you look like a Mitchell. So I'm just going to call you Mitchell from now on. That would be infuriating. And there's very little difference between calling someone by their name and referring to their pronouns, because both of which are the means through which we identify. And just as a side note, I really like when people say, I don't use pronouns because I is a pronoun. <laughs> so when you say, I don't use pronouns, you just used them. <laughs> anyway, um, did you have thoughts on that? We have a few minutes left. Yeah. So I would say one of the biggest things to do is starting to just incorporate and using your own pronouns. When you introduce yourself, it's a great way to identify as an ally and start to incorporate it. Um, also, a lot of times people, when they do start messing up, they want to apologize immediately afterwards. Um, for example, for me, because I use they, them pronouns and I also live in Southern Utah, I misgendered on a daily basis mm -hmm. in more conversations than not. It feels really uncomfortable that people are constantly apologizing to me. It feels really weird. So for me personally, I rather that people catch it, correct themselves and just move on. So if you do have somebody in your life who's using a pronoun that you have to get used to, I would start by saying, ask them what you like, how they would like you to respond if they catch themselves misgendering. Good point. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good point. Always ask, right? And then beyond that, what I would say too, is I don't really think necessarily of, you said Mitchell? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think of it almost as, what if you had a boss or family member who felt you were so insignificant, they didn't need to bother to learn your name? Mm. Every time they were calling you, they're like, hey, you, come here. Yeah. Dehumanizing, right? Yeah. That's what I think about it as. It's you are so insignificant to me. I have so little care, respect for you as a human being. I don't need to learn how to honor you or to see you as you see yourself because I know better. I get to tell you who you are. Mm. That's what it feels like to me. Now, the reality is, are a lot of people going to hop on the bag and wagon anytime soon? I don't think so. It is very much a personal choice if you want to try to be an ally to marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. But if you do, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And just know that the process takes a couple of years to really start to normalize it because what's happening too is you have to start deconstructing how you are socialized, looking at somebody, seeing that gender expression, then automatically thinking man, woman. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that process of deconstructing, that's another highly intersectional topic. You can mm -hmm. do, there's a lot of people who are deconstructing, uh, gender, race, religion, ethnicity, uh, uh, socioeconomic status Like you can deconstruct at each level. And it can be very overwhelming, even for, you know, mm -hmm. people who, especially even for people who have grown up their whole life, believing one thing and learning a, a, a particular worldview and then needing to pick that entire thing apart. It can feel very threatening, but I would, I would say that it's, it's incumbent upon, at least in this context, cisgendered people to, um, it, it, it's almost like a civic duty, right? To, to help people who are in need of help and to accommodate your communication styles to people who are members of at-risk groups, even if the individual that you're engaging with isn't necessarily an at-risk individual. And so just to put a bow on that, I, I think the number one thing that folks like myself, cisgendered folks can do is to like, just like shut up and listen to, to what 
these communities are asking you to do and to ever so slightly adjust your behavior in a way that might mildly inconvenience you every now and then, but overall won't necessarily affect your life, but can very much positively affect the lives of those, uh, of those people in your community. Well, and to bring it back to what you're talking about earlier, right? There's, I feel like every generation always has this um, stereotype or, or theme, whatever you want to call it, that the previous generations just like kids these days, <laughs> right? And they're modernizing and all this stuff and they're resistant to change. And I think the reality is, is a lot of humans fall into that category because when we feel comfortable, what need do we have to change or improve, right? We reach homeostasis. Right. Yeah. The reality is for some people, I'm one of those people, I am on a constant quest my entire life of self-growth and enlightenment. Yeah. So for me, I intentionally put myself in uncomfortable situations because that's when I grow. If I'm comfortable, what reason do I have to grow? So yeah, it might be uncomfortable for you for a couple of years to start normalizing using pronouns and seeing people beyond those gender expressions. But at the end of the day, that is how we grow. <laughs> and that is the end of the day for us. Thank you so much for joining us. We will unpack some of those potential conflicts in our next episode with our next guest. But for now, we'll see you when we see you. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication. This has been a production from a podcast studio.